Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. With your word, would you increase our faith? Would you grant us faith? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, Lord, would you give us and increase our faith in you? Would you help us to believe you in spite of what we can see and experience with our senses? Would you help us to believe you? Because we know you to be faithful to your promises. We thank you that you've promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you promised that you'd be with us to the end of the age. Thank you that you've promised that you will hold us fast. Lord, help us to live in light of these great promises. And Lord, help us to see the great truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone once again this morning and change us by it. Free us to make us radically bold and risk-taking followers of Jesus that we might accomplish your purposes, that we might be involved in your purpose to send your name, your word, your gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, give us radical assurance that, that gives us, that propels us outward to love people well. Accomplish your word through your word on this day, your day, that you have made. Would you do all of that through Christ for his glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Church family, so good to see you. I thank God for you. God is at work in a thousand different ways in our church. It's so good to see. I'm so thankful to be part of it. And my encouragement to us is let's press on into maturity and faithfulness in Christ. Well, in our study of the New Testament letter of the book of Romans, we are now in chapter 4. And so go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 4. And for the good of our souls and for the glory of our God, let's read and consider the message of Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent, of the, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the living word of God. May he inscribe it, its truth on our hearts. Well, there's good news and bad news with this passage. I assume you want the bad news first. The bad news is that this passage basically says the exact same thing Paul has been saying through chapter 3 and into chapter 4. This is the same argument Paul has been hammering on for some time now. Paul restates here that a right standing with God is by faith in Jesus as our substitute. We aren't justified by our nationality, by the family we were born in, or by our righteous deeds, or by our keeping of God's law. He says justification is by faith alone. So that's the the bad news of this passage. What's the good news of this passage? Well, the good news is that the bad news is actually good news. It's good news because we can't hear this truth often enough or grasp it well enough. I've long been encouraged by the story about the great reformer Martin Luther who was once approached by a guy who asked him why he always preached the gospel of justification by faith alone in every single sermon. Luther, why do you always preach the same thing, that justification is by faith alone? And Luther is thought to have replied something like this. Beloved, because week after week, you forget it. You will never be without your need for the gospel, and so I will never cease preach it to you. Charles Spurgeon actually said this about Luther's constant preaching the gospel. This quote will be on the screen. Spurgeon said, the Bible, the whole Bible tells us from beginning to end that salvation is not by the works of the law, but by the deeds of grace. Spurgeon said Martin Luther declared that he constantly preached justification by faith alone because, said he, the people would forget it so that I was obliged almost to knock my Bible against their heads to send it into their hearts. Spurgeon says, so it is true. We constantly forget that salvation is by grace alone. So there is the good news of the gospel itself. Gloriously good news. But there's also the good news that Paul keeps reminding us of the gospel because we are so quick to forget it. And so if your first thought of this passage is, I've already heard this, I should have just stayed in bed this morning, I pray that you will humble yourself to realize that God is wiser than you and He thinks you need to hear these truths again and again. 
And if you know yourself to have gospel amnesia and load the fact that you quickly forget the most important truths in the universe, then praise God that He is so kind as to remind us of what we need to hear again and again and again because we so quickly forget it. I want you to notice three truths in this passage that we've already talked about so much here at Miller Heights Baptist Church, but I want you to hear it again. Like Luther, I want to beat it in your head that maybe it goes to your heart. Three truths in this passage about a right standing with God. And if this is your, if this is your first time to hear these truths, praise God. I am so glad you're here to hear these truths for the first time. But if this is your hundred thousandth time to hear these truths, praise God. I am so glad you're here to hear these truths that you need to hear. This is what we all need here. Number one, a right standing with God is not by works. A right standing with God is not by works, by which I mean to say it's not by anything in you, anything that you do or anything that you are. This is one of the key points Paul has been making in the book of Romans. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, he declared that no human being would be justified by the works of the law. In chapter 3, verse 28, he declared that justification is by faith apart from works of the law. Paul has been saying it's only by faith, not by work. And now here again in chapter 4, Paul is using Abraham as a clear example that no one has ever been justified by works. Paul says not only is it not now by works, but it never has been by works. And he goes all the way back to Abraham, the first person who was declared right in God's sight. And he says, look, it was by faith and not by works. Look at verses 13 through 15 closely. Paul says, he's continuing to talk about Abraham and the promise given to Abraham that he started at the beginning of chapter 4. And he says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world, which heir of the world, I think Paul is just tracing this back to the promise that he would be counted righteous, that is, he would have eternal life. This through the law, but how? Through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so verse 13, Paul points back to this promise that God had made to Abraham that he and his offspring that promise from God did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, Paul is going to say exactly why keeping the law can't justify anyone in just a second. He's going to say why he's saying this, why it's not by works. But just notice how obvious this statement is in verse 13. How obvious is this? Abraham was given promises and was counted righteous, that is, justified by God at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Right? Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and about chapter 15, Abraham is declared righteous in God's sight. Abraham is justified by his faith. But the law 
wasn't given by God to His people until much later. Right? Paul makes this same argument in the book of Galatians chapter 3 where he says the law came 430 years after the promise given to Abraham. And so the promise of a right standing with God cannot be based on keeping the law. Because Abraham received the promise and was justified by God long before the law was given. So verse 14, if the heirs of the promise are those who keep the law, then that would make the promise to Abraham meaningless. That would make the promise void. If Abraham could do it on his own, what's the use of a promise from God? Because, Paul says in verse 15, the law brings wrath. Now, I think Paul is saying that God's purpose in giving the law was His wrath, to show His wrath. Now, we know God gave the law out of His love, out of grace to show, to show kindness to His people, to reveal to them His will and what He expected of them. But the law brings wrath, as Paul has already stated, because no one can keep the law. The law brings wrath because no one can keep it perfectly. We are all lawbreakers. And so the result of the law is the righteous wrath of God. That's what it means by the law brings wrath. The result of the law is the wrath of God against our sin. But if we don't have the law of God, if God doesn't reveal Himself to us, we wouldn't know what sin is. And so Paul says at the end of verse 15, where there is no law, God, God's law shows us God's will. Romans 3.20 again says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So God's law reveals sin as sin. In other words, we wouldn't know what sin is if God hadn't told us. If, if God hadn't told us that we should not commit adultery, that adultery is a sin, we wouldn't know that we shouldn't commit adultery. The law defines God's will for us. Sure, we have the, our conscience. God's, God gives us a conscience to tell us, but because we're corrupt, we would never understand what is right and wrong on our own. We need God to tell us, and He's done that by revealing Himself in the law. Romans 7.7 7 says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So apart from God's law, we wouldn't know what God defines as sin. We would just do whatever comes natural to us, and we would think that's right, right? Which is how people live who don't have an objective standard of God's law telling them what is wrong and what is right. And so Paul concludes in verse 16, this is why a right standing with God depends on faith and not on works. Why? Why does it depend on faith and not on works? Paul says, notice, so that it would be all up to God and not us. Right? This is the only way a right standing with God can be guaranteed by faith. If it were by works, we would never know if we were good enough to achieve that right standing. But since it's not based on works, we can know for sure that we have a right standing with God. Why? Because it's a gift of His grace. So Abraham, he says, is the father of all who believe. Abraham isn't just the father of the Jews. Abraham is the father of Jews and Gentiles who have faith in God's good and precious promise. And so once again, Paul is teaching something like this. Keeping the law as a means of right standing 
control without boundaries. You can push it, but it's not going to move on its own. The way God has designed the law is to be like that remote control car without batteries. In fact, God gave this warning with the law. Batteries not included. But the promise of the gospel transforms us from the inside and gives us the ability and power to obey God through faith in Jesus. We are given the batteries of the Holy Spirit with the life of Christ in us. So here's what Paul is saying. A right standing with God is not based on anything we do. It is not by works. It is not by our good and moral life. It's not by our superior morality to other people around us. It's not by the amassing of good deeds over a lifetime. It's not by checking all the religious boxes and saying, I've done that. And if that's true, if it's not by works, then how does one become right with God? Well, Paul tells us, number two, a right standing with God is by faith alone. It's not by works. It is by faith alone. So here's the reason that Paul is using Abraham as the prime example because Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so what Paul does in verses 16 to 22 is he gives us another instance in Abraham's life where we can see faith, where we can see that Abraham believed God. The example he gives here is the miraculous birth of his son Isaac. Now you remember this story, don't you? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many generations, many nations. In fact, Paul points to the promise in verse 17. But there were a couple of huge problems with that promise. You remember? Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they didn't have any kids, and they were well beyond childbearing age. And I mean well beyond. How can God promise that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations if Abraham had zero descendants? How in the world would Abraham father a, a, as many generations as the stars are in the sky, as the sands are on the seashore, if he had no descendants? This was a seemingly hopeless promise. There's no way this would be fulfilled. So what did Abraham do? When he considered the promise of God and he considered the circumstances around him, would he consider the situation he was in? What did Abraham do? Well, let Paul summarize what Abraham's response was in verses 17 through 22. Look what Paul says. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So there's the promise. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That, that word literally means deadness. When he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So just think back to all the things Paul says here about the faith of Abraham. Verse 17, he says, Abraham believed in the God who raises the dead. Abraham had never seen a resurrection. He had, I am assuming, never heard about someone being resurrected. Abraham believes that God can raise the dead. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. Verse 18, Abraham did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made Abraham waver, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. Verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, anyone who has ever read the book of Genesis should be scratching their head right now. We should question whether Paul ever actually read the book of Genesis. I mean, Genesis portrays Abraham as anything but a hero. Right? Abraham laughed. That's where the name Isaac came from. Isaac means he laughs. Abraham laughed at God's promise. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife twice. Abraham took matters into his own hands and slept with Hagar in hopes that he could force God's hand and his promise in a natural way. So why does Paul seem to whitewash all of that and just focus on the amazing faith of Abraham? Well, I think the reason is this. Paul's point is not that Abraham believed perfectly and never doubted. That's just not true. Paul's point is that Abraham had faith. You hear that? It's not that he had perfect, flawless, spotless faith. Paul's point is he had faith and he continued to believe God's promises even when it seemed hopeless. Yes, Abraham's faith was imperfect for sure, but he had faith and he kept believing in spite of the experience of old age and the circumstances of his life. That's the point of faith. No one has perfect faith. It doesn't exist. But having faith in the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist is the instrument of receiving justification from God. It's how someone is counted right, not by perfect spotless faith, but by faith. Paul has been hammering on this nail of faith alone for several chapters now. Justification is only by faith. That is the main point. But Paul does something here I think that's worth spending a little bit more time on. And that is Paul gives us some clues as to what faith actually is. See, if justification is only by faith, then what is faith? And Paul shows us from this instance in Abraham's life what faith looks like. Shows us what faith manifests itself like. Now, this isn't meant to be a comprehensive discussion of what faith is, but rather just some pointers to the nature of faith. 
Notice a couple of pointers to the nature of faith in Abraham's life. First, notice that faith is embracing truth that isn't immediately apparent. When you ask the question, what is faith? Faith is embracing truth that isn't immediately apparent with the senses. This is what Paul means in verse 18 when he says, in hope he believed against hope. What does that mean? Abraham had hope in something that seemed impossible. His belief was against his natural and reasonable experience in this world. That's what faith is. A crucified carpenter isn't immediately apparent as the object of our eternal salvation. If you were just making this up, and you, where should our hope for eternal salvation lie? You wouldn't say on a despised carpenter. Faith is supernatural in that way. It embraces something that can't be seen with the eyes. Abraham was as good as dead. That's what it says. Right? He's good. We know what that means. His skin drooped. His eyes dimmed. His energy zapped. Sarah was barren. Literally, Paul says, her, we, her, her womb was dead. After a lifetime of sexual relations with her husband, children naturally. There's no reasonable way to come up with the conclusion that this old man and this old barren woman could have a child together. There is zero natural explanation for that. But it's what God said would happen. It's what God said would happen. And so faith allows God's Word to define reality. Notice, notice the phrase in verse 18. As he had been told. You see that? In hope he believed in his hope that he should become the father of many nations. But why did he believe that? Why did he believe that he would be the father of a multitude at 100 years old, barren wife? Why did he believe that? Because he was told. As he had been told. Who told him that? God did. And what did Abraham do with that? He believed God. Abraham allowed God's Word to define him more than the external evidence of his circumstances. That's what faith is. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin reminds us that as Christians, we share Abraham's situation. You and I share the situation of Abraham. We have circumstances around us that seem to contradict what God has told us, right? Calvin says it this way. He says, He promises us immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that He accounts us as just, yet we are covered with sins. What then? While we remain aware of our woes, we disregard everything that might prevent us from believing that God is true. That's what faith is. Refusing to trust anything that would contradict what God has said. We disregard everything that might prevent us from saying, God, what you said is true. So we learn from Abraham that faith is embracing what isn't immediately apparent. We believe what God says, even if it doesn't make sense from a human a right standing with God is only by faith, by this kind of faith, a faith that believes something that you can't just immediately see and prove and dissect. But what else is faith? 
we learn from Abraham. Secondly, faith is intentionally God-focused. Faith is intentionally focused on God. So notice what Paul does here. Paul is very careful to focus on the object of Abraham's faith, not its subjective qualities. By this, Paul makes clear that it's not the purity of our faith that saves us, but rather it is the perfect object of our faith that saves. Somebody in here need me to say that again? It's not the purity of your faith that saves you. It is the perfect object of your faith that saves you. This is the summary of Abraham's faith. The end of verse 20 and verse 21. Abraham did what? He gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, true faith focuses on who God is. True faith glorifies God because it it glorifies his power and ability to do what he promised. And so, friends, faith isn't the absence of hard thinking. Rather, true faith contemplates who God is. Notice verse 17 again. Who did Abraham believe in? What kind of God did he believe in? He believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And so Abraham looked at his circumstances. He looked at his body. He looked at his wife's body. And instead of... God's promises are impossible. Abraham considered God's power. He considered that God can. He is able to bring life out of death. God can. God is able to create sun and moon and stars out of nothing. He's fully convinced of what? What was he fully convinced of? That God is able. That God is able to do exactly what God promises he'll do. Think about how much more we know about God than Abraham did. We know how this story turned out, don't we? We know God made Sarah's barren womb a place of life. And we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, which is what Paul points to in verse 24. And so Paul is saying that Isaac's birth is a pointer to the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Isaac is a type pointing us to the fact that Jesus would be raised in power. Well, friends, we have far more proof of God's power than Abraham could have ever imagined. And yet, even if imperfectly, Abraham trusted God. He believed what he knew to be true about his God. So, friends, true faith has a gloriously powerful object a gloriously powerful object, God himself. And friends, if that's true, if faith is more about the object of faith than it is about the faith itself, then what we learn from passages like this is one of the ways we can strengthen our faith is to study and think about our God. Get to know your God. Get to know his power and grow strong in your faith so that you do not waver. The more you know of God, the more I know of God, the more we will be able to trust Him even in spite of the hopelessness of our situation. So do you have faith in the God who raises the dead? Do you have faith in the God who can raise dead things to life? Do you trust the God who has unlimited power and authority? And do you receive the good news that Jesus is enough 
for your eternal salvation. That's the biggest point of this passage. A right standing with God is only by faith in Jesus. It is not by our works. Justification, a right standing with God, is by faith in Jesus alone. Well, the third and foundational truth that I want you to see is that a right standing with God is only possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. I told you you'd already heard this before, but I also told you you need to hear this more than anything else in all the world. I need to hear that a right standing with God is only possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. So notice how Paul concludes this discussion of Abraham being counted right. So he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then look how Paul concludes this. Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul says Genesis 15 was not written just for Abraham. <laughs> it was also written for us. Genesis 15. In other words, God still counts people righteous by faith. It's the whole point of this passage. It's the whole point of this sermon. God is still in this business of declaring people right in His sight. But how in the world can this holy, awesome, righteous God count unrighteous people and unbelieving sinners like us as right in His sight? This just doesn't seem fair or right. Well, Paul has already answered this question definitively back in chapter 3, verses 21-26, through 26, but he answers it again here. How can God do this? The only way possible for God to declare people right in His sight is through the death and resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Paul points to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He was delivered up for our transgressions. Think of all that that implies, that phrase, He was delivered up. His Father delivered Him up to be beaten and crushed whipped and crucified. He was delivered up. Why? He was delivered up for our transgression. This seems to be a direct quote from Isaiah 53. Jesus' death was a substitution. We all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus died, He died in the place of sinners as our substitute. This is what we have faith in. This is the object of our faith. We, we didn't see Jesus dying. None of us saw Him dying. None of us can see behind the curtain and see our sins being placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness placed on us. We can't see that with our natural eyes. But we have faith that it's true because God said it's true. Paul also mentions the victorious resurrection here. Jesus was raised for our justification. We celebrated this a few weeks ago on Easter that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that Jesus' death was sufficient. That Jesus rose from the dead means that the Father accepted His sacrifice and vindicated Him in every possible way. Friends, this is what we have faith in. This is the object of our faith. None of us saw Jesus rise from the dead. We weren't there. 
We can't scientifically prove that Jesus rose from the dead, even if there are powerful arguments that it's true. We believe that it's true. We have faith that it's true. We have faith that a dead man was resurrected from the grave, and that resurrection is what produces our justification, our right standing with God. See, our right standing with God, it's based on objective events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we believe this is what God does, He counts us to be righteous in His sight because of the righteousness of Jesus, the one who died and was resurrected. Now again, everything we have just said and exulted in has already been explained in the book of Romans. And this is good news because we need to hear this again and again and again. And we will need to continue reminding ourselves of this tomorrow and the next day and the next day and on into eternity. But here's how I want to close this sermon. I want to ask the question, what's the point? What's the use of all of this? The Puritans used to preach sermons and they were very long sermons. And what they would do is they would divide them in half. The whole first half would be doctrine. And the whole second half would be what they called uses. So here are the uses. We've talked about the doctrine. It's not by faith. I mean, not by works. It is by faith. It's based on the substitutionary atonement and victorious resurrection of Jesus. But what's the, the use of justification? Well, I think this points to at least five answers to this question. I'm just going to point them very briefly to you in the text. And just FYI, next week, starting in chapter 5, this is what Paul's actually going to do. He's going to start talking about how justification makes a difference in our lives. And so we're going to keep addressing this over the next few weeks, but let me just point you to a few advantages here of justification by faith alone. Number one, justification by faith encourages humility. Justification by faith encourages humility. Paul makes this point back in chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, Abraham has nothing to boast about. Verse 4 says that Abraham would have something to boast about if it were by works, right? Because when you work, you get wages. Wages are what's due to you when you work. And so if you work and you make a wage, you have every right to boast about that wage. But since Abraham was counted righteous by faith, he has absolutely nothing to boast about. This is why faith gives glory to God. Because God is the one who saves and so may the doctrine of justification by faith alone break our pride and fuel our humility. May it break our pride and may it fuel our humility. Secondly, justification by faith provides massive assurance. Justification by faith provides massive assurance. So what this doctrine does is takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts it on the God who promises a great salvation. Our salvation is as secure as God is faithful to His promises. Listen, it is not your faith that saves you. It is God who saves. And He does so by faith alone. And thus, it's not how strong our grip is on Him, but it's how strong His grip is on us. He will us fast. How do we know that? Because we're so strong? No, our faith is frail. Our faith is cold. He will hold us fast because that's what He said He'll do. This is our new identity. And this gives us massive assurance. Third, justification by faith produces a missional mindset. 
produces a, a missional mindset. One of Paul's points here is to say that anyone, Jew and Gentile, can be counted righteous by faith. This isn't just for one group of people. This is for everyone. And if this is true, this should compel us outward to share the Gospel with our neighbors and all around the world. The only hope anyone, any person has of being a child of Abraham and inheriting eternal life is by faith in Jesus. But friends, we must share this good news. We must. Fourth, justification by faith enables us to hope when there is no hope. There was no hope for Abraham and Sarah to have a child to fulfill God's promises. Abraham was good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. All they had, all they had was God's Word. And again, Abraham had hope. God's promises to us are all we have as well. We have no hope of eternal life or salvation apart from the truth of God's Word. Friends, in this life we will suffer, we will face sorrow and grief. And if we're looking for hope in this world, we will never find it. But the person who believes God, the God who raises the dead, the God who calls into existence things that do not exist, can endure anything in this world with the faith that we have God's promises, and that is enough. Are God's promises enough for you today, right now? Are they enough for you to hope when there is zero hope? Fifth and finally, justification by faith frees us to be bold and risk-taking. Secured in the right standing with God that He has given us by faith. Friends, we can act on God's promises when it seems foolish to everyone around us. Why risk it all? Why risk a life following Jesus when all the world tells us to not do that, to get whatever we can get in this life, to have all the experiences now? Why risk it all and be bold and take some risk for the glory of God? Why do it? Why have courage? Why not just be wimps and stay at home and do nothing? Well, I submit to you that the doctrine of justification by faith is what should free us to trust and obey God no matter what He calls us to do. We have a God who raises the dead. We have a God who can do whatever He wants to do. So let's venture on Him. Let's take great risks for His cause and in His name because you know what? We know He will never leave us or forsake us. We know He will never abandon His people. He will be with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, free us to follow Jesus. Free us from our pride and give us humility that we might have great assurance and that we might do great things for your glory and for your kingdom. God, I pray that every person in this room would look to Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation. I pray they would abandon all attempts to earn your favor in their own righteousness, but that they would trust fully and solely in Jesus. And in that, Lord, would you make us your people who give glory to you, who are fully convinced that you are, you are able to do everything you said you'd do. It's sweet to trust in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us to taste that sweetness now. You would free us and propel us and fuel us outward. Oh God, we need your help. We are desperate people. We pray for your help. In Jesus' great name, amen.
Let's stand and sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'"